Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. From Nola Pizza in the Nola Brewing Tap Room on Chapatula Street in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti, Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. We hear a lot about polarization these days, and for good reason. It impacts all of us. There are two types of polarization, political and financial. You can probably make a case that they're related, but today we're going to talk about the financial variety. Most conversations about financial polarization tend to take the same shape. They begin with the observation that more wealth is becoming concentrated in fewer hands. Among the reasons, they say, are companies growing bigger through mergers and acquisitions and systematic inequalities in the accumulation of personal wealth. The conversation typically continues with a description of how things are getting worse over time. As the financial poles move farther apart, they are pulling most of us in the direction of declining spending power. Conversations about financial polarization tend to end with the same conclusion. There's somewhere between not much and absolutely nothing we can do about it. My guests on Out to Lunch today don't buy that conclusion. The interesting thing about Tamara Prosper and Daniela Rivera Bryant and why I want to introduce them to you is they're not making academic observations about economic theory. They're actually doing things in the real world to spread the wealth. Tamara is loan steward at Cooperation New Orleans. Cooperation New Orleans is an organization that develops worker-owned cooperatives. A worker-owned cooperative is a business that is owned by the employees who work there. Rather than a single owner or partners reaping the rewards of company profits and other advantages of owning a company like tax breaks, those benefits are shared by all the employee owners. According to a 2021 study, at that time there were 612 worker cooperatives in the U.S. When we get more updated statistics, the expectation is that the number of cooperatives will have risen dramatically over the last few years. They're certainly catching fire in New Orleans. Tamara Prosper, welcome out to lunch. Glad to be here. Daniela Rivero Bryant is the co-founder and COO at Reimagine Development Partners. They're property developers, and as their name suggests, they're reimagining what property development looks like. Like other developers, Reimagine takes advantage of the Federal Historic Tax Program, but unlike other developers, Reimagine replaces the lender, normally an institution like a bank, with a crowdfunding model. In this way, members of the local community chip in five dollars to $10,000 and become investors in the kind of property development deal normally reserved for financial institutions or wealthy investors. So, regular folks get access to the kind of potential profit and the immediate real-world tax advantages normally only available to property developers. Reimagine Development Partners' focus is on smaller projects in rural areas, the kind of developments that are too small for regular investor syndicators and have a big impact on the local community. Daniela Rivera Bryant, welcome out to lunch. Thank you for having me. Tamara, I get the sense that employee-owned businesses aren't necessarily businesses that are started from scratch. Uh, a good proportion of them seem to be regular single-owner businesses that 
transition for one reason or another to an employee-owned business. Why do people do this? Why would an owner with a successful business want to share the ownership with his or her employees? And if the business isn't successful and the owner wants to get out, why would the employees want to own a failing business? Well, there are a few things with that. Um, a lot of these businesses are started by the employees, but in some cases, um, when you do have this transfer, um, and I don't know of any that have happened that way here in New Orleans for this reason, but a lot of times um, someone is retiring and their children don't want it. And you just really hoped and believed Junior would take over the family business and Junior wants to surf or do something <laughs> else and follow the interests. And so yeah, they like don't junior. want to dissolve the business, they, but they want to make sure it's in good hands. And so usually when you've got an ongoing business like that, you've got some employees who've been there for a while, you've got some trusted people and you know that they know the brand, they know the idea of it, and they know how to make it work. And so that's one of the reasons this happens. Um, it's not always the owner who has this idea. Sometimes the employees find out, oh, the owner is gonna retire or sell it or whatever they're gonna do. And the employees get together and make a petition and say, hey, can we get first rights of refusal? Um, can we put it together and, and, and buy it from you? Because that way they protect themselves from having someone else come in, fire everybody and bring in their people. Daniela, when somebody we regard as a regular investor in property development puts money into a project, nobody expects them to dip into their personal savings. In fact, most property investors, even if they're personally good for a few million dollars, would tell you that they're not crazy enough to use their own money. However, when you talk about the crowdfunding model, asking regular folks to chip in five or $10,000 can be a significant amount of money. So is there a way your crowdfunding investor doesn't have to be crazy enough to use their own money? And do you provide a way for small investors to get their hands on five or $10,000 that doesn't require them to take money out of their bank accounts or, or life savings? When you think about investing in real estate, um, you don't really think that you can do that with just a couple thousand dollars or that you're going to have a real impact. Um, so the uh, crowdfunding model that we've established is to fund the tax credit equity needed for historic projects, redevelopments of historic buildings that want to capitalize on the historic tax credit program um, but in order to actually get these historic tax credits, first you have to do the work. You have to build the building or, re or rehab the building, and then you have access to the credits. Um, that's one of the first challenges that developers have, especially if your project is relatively small or in a community that is not considered a major metro area. Uh, then banks and other financial institutions might have less of an appetite and consider that more of a risky investment. So the idea of crowdfunding uh, the tax credit equity from local people, from friends of the developer, people who actually value that community, really the neighbors, um, helps the community have ownership of these projects as opposed to having profits and ownership go out to a large institution that's maybe um, owned by, you know, that's a publicly traded firm or something like that. Um, and uh, the way that we are developing ways to provide um, avenues for people to use their 
tax liability with money that you would actually be paying in taxes for the next few years and actually invest that money into our projects where you get tax credits which pay for your tax liability and in addition to that you are part owner of the project as the financial institution would be um, but instead of having a big owner uh, of the tax credit entity we uh, have several small community local people who own those credits. Tamara, um, I guess because I teach finance one of the things that grabs me in this is that how do you value the business? Well, we have a totally different approach to it. We try to look at it um, from a non-capitalist perspective, which is completely the opposite of really everything the United States does. And the uh, cooperative approach is just looking at it and saying, okay, what are the other assets? Assets don't necessarily have to be dollars and property. Assets could be experience, could be education, could be um, sweat equity and things along those lines. Normally there isn't really the drive to evaluate a business because you're not planning to sell it or you're not planning to you know, make it go public or anything like that. So the, the goal of the business isn't only to make the greatest profit. The goal of the business is so that all of the employees can reap the benefit of being business owners and create generational wealth. And I agree with you that um, I think that one of the most revolutionary things today is that we're actually thinking of these intangible community assets, the, the fabric of community, the pride people feel for their communities as a driver for investment. Um, we have several projects, for example, in Selma, Alabama, that we are in the process of putting out there for uh, crowdfunding. And uh, a week ago, I was telling people in Selma, like us, uh, that they can actually own some of these projects themselves and not with millions of dollars, but with a $5,000 investment. Um, if you think about it today, a cell phone costs a thousand or two thousand bucks, right? Imagine if you can use actually that money to become a real estate owner and you don't, you're not even, when you buy a cell phone, you're spending your money. Here you're investing your money and you're investing money that you will pay in taxes. Uh, it's because you get tax credits that offset your tax liability in exchange. So it's a very safe investment that communities didn't have access to. Um, and I do think that there's a lot of assets that we discount, especially in small communities, intangible assets, and also wealth um, that can be put together to make change. And uh, Tamara, I guess I don't want to get too hung up on the uh, logistics here, but what if an employee leaves? Do they leave with some equity or? So normally there's an operating agreement established. Um, with any cooperative, um, there's a path to ownership. So you don't just start and become an owner. They can determine what that path to ownership means. Maybe you've worked here for 18 months. You've met these certain benchmarks and, and did whatever it is. Likewise, there's a path to exit, just like you know, other businesses have an exit strategy. So um, that would be identified by the cooperative itself. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with Tamara Prosper from Cooperation New Orleans. They develop worker-owned cooperative businesses. And Daniela Rivera-Bryant from crowdsourcing property development company Reimagine Development Partners. We'll continue our conversation when we come right back from this short break. Support for Out to Lunch comes from Adata Corporate Staffing. 
Basics Swim and Gym, and Basics Underneath, Fine Lingerie, Camellia Productions Marketing Consulting, Corette Leadership Lab, Communication and Conflict Resolution, Feigley Communications, Full Service Marketing, Gamble PR, HR NOLA, Infinite Health Integrative Medicine Center, Lolo's Youth Yoga and Art Studio, Michelle Weighing and Measurement, Calibration Services and Measurement Equipment Since 1947, New Orleans Ice Cream, available in select grocery stores. New Orleans Investment Conference, November 1st through 4th. Noki, New Orleans Culinary and Hospitality Institute. Rev Realtors, The Idea Village, The Scout Guide Baton Rouge, and The Scout Guide New Orleans. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with Tamara Prosper from Cooperation New Orleans. They develop worker-owned cooperative businesses. And Daniela Rivero-Brien from crowdsourcing property development company, Reimagine Development Partners. And Daniela, what about, um, I know these property development deals are usually long-term. And is that, uh, so you don't have the liquidity of buying and selling a stock or a bond. Is that okay with your investors? It's a very different concept to small investors? Well, um, as long as small investors continue paying taxes, they this is a great deal for them. Because like I said, you're really borrowing from Uncle Sam, which is what many very wealthy people do. Uh, you know, you invest money that you will be paying in taxes um, and receive tax credits of different kinds uh, to offset how much you end up actually paying in cash towards your taxes. Um, so. I think that's uh, the key to a long-term investment is knowing that you will have the benefits coming out on a regular basis. So every year, 20% of your investment comes back to you in tax credits. If you invested $5,000, every year you will get $1,000 of tax credits, which offset $1,000 of your tax liability. You know what I think would happen, I definitely would do it, is if my money went into a building that now housed a restaurant, I would eat there more often. Does that happen? And yes. that's yeah, <laughs> agreed exactly. That's our um, that's our view also that a lot of this when you um, I've been in community development. My partner Will Bradshaw has done a lot of commercial tax advantage development, and we see that when people have ownership and feel like they've been involved, even at a small level, um, yeah, that's I mean. You, that's where it, it's logic, right? Because you know you're the owner of that building. Of that building, you know if that restaurant does well or that business does well, um, you're gonna do better. So of course, I, we believe that uh, that community um, pride is a part of the success of the building, as opposed to, to somebody else coming from outside doing a development and just leaving a building there. Um, I think we need to think about this as development for people and not just development of structures. And that goes in line as well with um, worker buy-in. If you are the worker and as well as the owner, you're not going to just quit. You're going to show up to work. You're going to reap these benefits. Yes. Workers will make sacrifices that they normally wouldn't because they are owners and they have a real vested interest in the success of this business. And so you have more stability. Often that brings about better service. And then once the community is aware of what's happening, that kind of feeling spreads. If you ever want to Google um, Mondragon in Spain, 
it just started as a small cooperative situation and now that is a whole like a region where everything works cooperatively from their healthcare system uh, their transit their housing social services all of those things that just sprouted out of people working cooperatively instead of a few people trying to earn the most money from the masses and Tamara what about how do you make business decisions? Does everybody in aisle four get together and? Well, again, it, it's specific to the cooperative and how they do it, and it it depends on the size. You know, the more people you have, the more you have to delegate things. But they do have a. There's a cooperative in New York. It's one of the largest ones in the state, and they provide home health services. They have a president, and and all the way down to the uh, CNAs who go into homes and provide care, and their pay is different but they are all owners. And so some tasks are delegated to some people and tasks are delegated to the other people. But when it comes to making major decisions, everybody has a vote. In some ways, that's also a production without extraction uh, mentality, that's exactly right? Exactly you think about um, owning a stock in a company that's publicly traded, it's, you know, your owner of a little bit. If the company does well, that's you, your stock goes up in price. Um, but you might be in San Francisco or in New York and the people that are actually working in that company might be in Alabama or in Louisiana and they might not feel like their work is worth what they're getting out of it. So there's a level of extraction of our, our intellectual capital when you have investing investment that comes in um, and then extracts the profits into a different community or towards a different um, uh, target. We see that very much in New Orleans. People coming in, doing what they want, and their money's going to New Jersey and California, and the people in New Orleans are saying, hey, you know, what's happening to our neighborhood that you're making all this money off of? Exactly. It, same is the issue with Airbnb yes. in New Orleans, right? We have a lot of owners. I d I've done some research on that. Uh, if you look at the owners of record and where they're located, a lot of the units are not owned by people who live here. Um, so when the rules were being created for New Orleans, actually one of my things was let's just allow only to people who live here. You know, so that that's when you really can keep the money in the community. And I'm not against outside investors, just for the record. But there's a different psychological um, impact of yes. working for yourself and knowing that, oh, if I do better, it matters because my ownership of this business will be worth more, as opposed to, oh, the company will make a billion dollars, great, but right. that doesn't change anything for me. And they'll give me a pin on my anniversary. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yes. Tamara, I have to ask you this question because I know people are thinking it. Is this socialism? It's not socialism exactly. I mean, it, it does go against capitalism, but that doesn't necessarily have to be socialism. People don't realize that cooperativism, cooperativism has existed long before it had a name. Um, people who have to cooperate because they have no other options will do so, and it benefits their community. Some of those examples, which, you know, they've gone now, but some of the earliest black communities created in Reconstruction post-slavery were cooperative communities because they were not allowed to be working with anybody else. They were left out of that. 
but because they all had something in common and knew that they all wanted to benefit, there wasn't this level of extraction. And in many ways, capitalism, in order to function, has to have a level of extraction because you have to maximize the profits. And that means maybe cutting staff, cutting wages, figuring out how to reduce what you're spending on. I mean, that's just how it works best. But that means somebody is losing something somewhere. The business may not be, but in some way, someone is either the customers or some of the lower level staff members. So it's just a way to, I mean, it's just cooperating. We learned in kindergarten, right? We can share. <laughs> and so that's really what it is. And it's, it's, we have a lot of strata to what we think certain jobs are, but I like to use restaurants because we're in New Orleans. If you think about the person who's washing dishes, they don't rank like the chef, but they know exactly what food is selling and what's getting left. They know what people are not eating. Nobody asks them when considering what do we need to cut? Where should we make budget adjustments? What's our best selling product? So in a cooperative restaurant, that person can say, hey, you know, nobody's really eating these baked potatoes. I throw them out every day before I wash these dishes. That wouldn't happen in most cases. Danielle, I really, I really love what you're doing. How do, you select you. A, how do you select a property? That's still gotta be an issue, right? Well, I have to tell you that in the last three months, our pipeline of properties have grown, has quadrupled uh, or quintupled. Um, we went from eight projects that Will and I were working on, brought on our staff uh, in the summer, and today we have about 40 projects with a pipeline of $300 million in projects. Um, and all of these people have come to us. We have not, actually, these developers, the, mark, the, the historic tax credit market is, or the, really the program is inefficient in the sense that you need to have a lot of capital up front to be able to monetize these credits. You have to have the right connections. And you need a big project because there is an economies of scale in the regular uh, financial structure to pull off these projects. So uh, half of the developers we work with where our students at Tulane University. Um, my partner, Will, created, uh, was part of the founding uh, members of the Master of Sustainable Real Estate Development, yeah, where um, we really have put a focus on helping our students understand that profit is not, should not be your only goal if you really want to have a viable development, uh, but actually that the triple bottom line of profit, community, and environment is what you have to focus on. Uh, community meaning your own workers, right? Uh, in fact, we are actually the, uh, right now structuring how we will make our employees at Reimagine Development Partners owners of the company as well, because we, we believe in having a, a stake uh, at the table changes your mindset about how you, your, your position. So um, there's also about 400 projects each year that are able that could get these historic tax credits, but never end up getting them. Apply and are approved, but don't get them. Um, so that's a pipeline of probably a few thousand projects nationwide that uh, we're going to start reaching out to and offering our services uh, to. But right now, it has all been uh, from 
uh, developers coming to us, understanding how we work. Um, and of course, we do a lot of um, uh, underwriting. We study the projects. We make sure that the projects are financially viable, uh, that the projects will be able to uh, be sustainable uh, in that community, and that they are responding to a market demand. However, um, it's you know the key there, is, and that's why we are we educate at the core. My partner and I, Will and I, are educators. We're professors at Tulane University, and we believe in the power of knowing how things work to be able to solve your problems. Daniela, I am working with a uh, cooperative in our pipeline that is looking to do um, a cooperative real estate development business. Do you have any advice for them? Oh, well, Tell them we can teach them how to get that done. Okay. <laughs> and get them in touch with us for sure. And uh, we would love to work with anyone in New Orleans. We see that that's a big trend. I mean, people are realizing that joining forces uh, to buy, you know, if you need a million dollars, that's a thousand people at a thousand dollars. Right. So it makes, uh, it's very hard to know a person who has a million dollars in the bank. Uh, but probably all of us can reach out to a thousand people to, to, who have a thousand dollars. So we absolutely, um, you know, we teach this, how, what kinds of structures, partnership structures are best for development within a community, for tax advantage development, to take advantage of tax credits uh, and uh, those types of financial tools. So absolutely, that would Thank be great. Tamara, how do I go about asking Cooperation New Orleans to help the Reimagine Development Partners set up a employee-owned company? Well, we have an intake process, and so we go through um, and just have a, a brief interview and make sure that there is uh, an alignment in values. That's a really important part of uh, what we do in Cooperation New Orleans and really trying to make sure that we don't overlook, not don't overlook, that we focus on black, indigenous, and marginalized citizens of the city who have the least access to capital. Um, and then look at what the business does and make sure that it's not extractive, that you know we're not just trying to take advantage of people. Um, but we kind of walk through that process and it doesn't take long. Once we make that values alignment, then we just start meeting and finding out what the needs are. Cooperative, different businesses have different requirements, so some need a lot of support, some don't, so we would just assess that and then move forward. Tamara, I have never heard the term loan steward. What is that? Well, it's like two things. Um, I'm kind of like the, the bank lender in that I help the organizations get the money that they need to start these businesses or to buy out a business. Um, I'm also um, like someone who helps with an incubator program, and so we connect you to technical assistance. If you need marketing or accounting services or web development, we kind of walk them through that, and then developing how they would operate, how they want to establish, do they want an LLC or a corporation, and, and just refining some of those business things. But I'd basically support on the business development and the getting the money. Danielle, I was just thinking about something you mentioned numerically is, you know, you could also go ask a million people at $1. That yes. would be really cumbersome, but I just wanted to bring that option up. You can, but in a small community like Selma, Alabama, you don't have a million people. If you're in New York City, you might be able to reach out to a million people who live in, a, in the same 
or who share the same community. So, um, you know, but like I was saying, $1,000 is a cell phone now, right? So when you think about, I, I can assure you, most people I've met in Selma, whatever rank uh, of so social class they are considered to be in, owns a cell phone that's at least worth a thousand bucks. So um, that's where, you know, it's not about investing one dollar. I, I do think um, it's about lowering the threshold of investment to make it available for people who are retail investors, individuals, but also the beauty of this is that you're investing the money you'll pay in taxes. It's, you're not investing your savings. That's the key. That's the key aspect. Um, and that's what makes it. We all pay taxes, but we don't all have savings. You know, Danielle, I'm the kind of guy that if we, I put a couple of thousand dollars in a project like a restaurant, I, I would take people to lunch and tell them I'm an owner of this restaurant. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, a lot of communities, like Tamara was saying, have not had the opportunity to be owners, right? And so we see, I think in the United States, actually, it was in, in order to incentivize the idea that capitalism is a good thing. Um, in the 1920s, the federal government put a lot of effort on the own your home initiative. People were not getting, loans were like 50, you had to put 50% down payment. The loans were very short-term loans. And so they weren't accessible. Most people before World War I in the United States were not homeowners. It was a program that was created to really to help people with the idea that if people own their homes, they're not going to be want to be in a socialist society. Tamara, locally, where would I see some of these cooperatives you're working with? Uh, there's Pagoda Cafe that's on Bayou Road near Dergewa Street. There is Flippin' Birds Food Truck, which you'll often see on Poydras or somewhere near the Tulane University Medical Center, and sometimes uptown by uh, Tulane and the Loyola Universities. Um, there's the Birthmark Doula Collective. We provide them with more technical assistance. They didn't need any financing from us. And we've got some other ones coming along in the pipeline. Daniela, I mean, it's all been fascinating, but how would somebody find out more about the program? Uh, you can go to our website, reimaginedp.com, and you can see our educational programs. You can see projects that we have that are already receiving tax credit equity investments. Um, and the news uh, about what we're doing. In any conversation about the direction of the overall economy, it's worth making the point that Jeff Bezos and Tim Cook and every other CEO with a giant income live in the same world we do. If we're not doing well, their businesses are not doing well either. So an economy that's on a polarizing trend where most of us have increasingly less wealth and spending power, well, that benefits nobody. You won't find an economist in the U.S. who disagrees with the notion that a strong and expanding middle class is better for everybody. You'll also have difficulty finding an economist who can tell you step by step how to actually reverse polarization and expand the middle class. But Daniela and Tamara, that is exactly what you are both in the process of actually doing. It's remarkable that you're both here in New Orleans. The work you're doing is impressive and potentially has an enormous impact. It has been a pleasure to meet you. Thank you both for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you, pleasure. Peter. Thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Daniela Rivero Bryant, co-founder and COO of Reimagined Development Partners, and Tamara Prosper, loan steward at 
Cooperation New Orleans. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Daniela's property development and Tamara's worker-owned cooperatives by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast on your podcast app and on our website, itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos in this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle, and our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Rashiri. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business, New Orleans style, on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch was recorded live over lunch at the NOLA Brewing Tap Room, 3001 Chapatula Street, open seven days a week. NOLA Brewing Tap Room has a wide variety of craft beers and authentic hand-tossed New York-style city pizza by NOLA Pizza. More information is at nolabrewing.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Passion Lily, Fair Trade Fashion, 831 Charter Street, or PassionLily.com. And by Mind Coach, professional coaching for the professional brain. More information at mind-coach.com. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at mitchellforeman.com. If you'd like to be part of Out to Lunch, to learn how your business or organization can become an Out to Lunch program partner, email info at inobroadcasting.com.